0: to the Western Huntsman podcast ladies and gentlemen welcome to this week's episode of the Western Huntsman podcast this is Jim Huntsman your host Coming at you from the Broken Time studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. And this week, we have got uh, a new guest or a, a new friend of mine who is a writer for Field and Stream magazine. And the, um, I guess, well, I'm going to have him explain it, actually. So uh, let's welcome Travis Hall. Travis, I appreciate you joining me, man.
1: Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your show. So it's awesome to be here uh, talking to you tonight.
0: No, that's cool. It was it was fun seeing because uh, you you messaged me saying, "Hey, I I mentioned your uh, your podcast in this mm-hmm. um article that you had written about the wolves." Mm-hmm. And uh, I was pretty I was pretty flattered, man. That's that's awesome. I I love seeing that kind of stuff. So I feel I feel like I was uh, you know you're like you're like going places when Field and Stream recognizes your podcast.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, man. I am. Um that podcast was really helpful for me and just trying to wade through that, that, uh, issue. So it, yeah, I appreciate you having that content out there. That's good stuff.
0: Yeah. We should, we should touch on that in a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, that particular issue, because it is a complicated, uh, muddy water to wade your uh, way through, you know what I mean? Definitely. Um, yeah. and, and I, I really liked having the director on to talk about it because he's got, a really good pulse as to what the situation is with the wolves and and uh, you know just wildlife management in general in the state of Idaho. So, mm-hmm. uh, Travis, let's start with uh, give everybody kind of the bird's eye view of your background, and we'll we'll take it from there. Yes,
1: yeah, so I'm the associate editor for Field and Stream uh, magazine. Um, I've I've been with the magazine for about six months now. Um, I I've, I've been a full time writer for. Uh, probably close, close to 10 years now. Um, I've, I've focused on the outdoors and, and more recently just kind of really honed in on hunting and fishing and, and conservation. Um, but yeah, super excited to be with field and stream full time these days and just totally immersed in, uh, the outdoor news cycle, the hunting and fishing, uh, beat I and mean, there's just no shortage of, of good stuff to write about
0: when so you because i'm i'm on this um the field and stream what do they call this like the travis hall page or whatever kind of gives you your bio and stuff
1: oh,
0: yeah, exactly. um it says you know you graduated southern indiana university or university of southern indiana um in 2012, with a degree in journalism, it was, was the goal always to be like an outdoors hunting and fishing writer, or how did that come about?
1: I would say, yeah, that's kind of why I got into it in the first place. I mean, I, I kind of remember being in high school, um, trying to track out some sort of career path and just thinking, you know, how can I couple of career path with my passion for hunting and and fishing and just being outside, um, had a, you know, a little bit of a knack for, for writing one of the few, uh, things that I excelled in academically. So, and I was, you know, crazy enough, I was a big reader of field and stream back then. And I was kind of like, you know, these guys writing in this magazine, this is what I would like to do uh, if I could somehow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that that is the path. The reason I went down that path is because I wanted to, um, get into a career that, that had something to do with, with hunting and fishing and the outdoors in general.
0: So before you wrote for Field and Stream, is that, was it something that like as a writer, um, I'm always curious about this, uh, cause I'm like a half-ass writer, man. Um, <laughs> the, and I'm always curious about you before you were there, you were like this freelance writer. What was that like? What did, What did you do as as like a freelance writer?
1: That was an interesting lifestyle. I mean, I I was before I came on full full time with Field and Stream. I was writing for doing some freelance stuff with them and um, these other mac other publications like like Meat Eater. Um, but yeah, that that was. I would say that I love the freelance lifestyle it's it's i love the freedom of it but um yeah i i kind of you know i i also love the stability of being full-time um i I probably prefer that uh over that but um yeah when i was when i was freelancing i was just kind of all over the board just constantly pitching and trying to develop relationships with editors and you know seeing what i could come up with but
0: was it it was it like stressful trying to you know keep a steady flow of income you know while writing for all these different platforms or whatever was that it was it does that make like was it stressful doing that
1: yeah it was it was stressful at times like you know you're always kind of at the whims of um of the budgetary constraints of, of the respective magazines that you write for um so that could be stressful because sometimes those budgets will dry up or they go in different directions and, and they move, um, you know, you, I'd go through spells where the, the work was just really flowing great. Um, but there were times when it, you know, it started to look, uh, you know, it it just wasn't quite, quite steady. So yeah, I'd say that that was definitely stressful at times.
0: So now, uh, you and your wife live in Montana's Bitterroot Valley. Yep. Yes, uh, you know, just a terrible, ugly, horrible part it's of the pretty, country to be in. Pretty rough. Yeah. Um, it's it's got to be pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, didn't John Denver sing a song about the Bitterroot Valley at some point? I think he, he had was born song. in the Bitterroot. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I I remember it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's that? What brought you to the bitter uh, to the Bitterroot Valley, man?
1: Man, so that, that's an interesting story in and of itself. I mean, my wife and I met working out in Yellowstone uh, National Park. Um, it's probably been twelve years now, but um, we—she's from South Carolina originally. Um, we met working out there in college, and ended up—I ended up living in South Carolina for a long time, and in her hometown. And we both just always wanted to get back out west because it was just kind of in our in our souls uh after being in yellowstone um Mm and you know we we finally decided to just pick up and move and a couple so almost been two years now we um she was pregnant with our now two-year-old child and we are actually sorry she wasn't pregnant she was pregnant when we decided to do it but he was about six months old when we took off we took off in a Travel trailer and and uh, traveled all over the West. Uh, spent a lot of time in Idaho, um, just kind of scoping out different towns. Um, spent some time in Wyoming and Southwest Montana around the Bozeman area. And we we came to Missoula, which we neither of us had ever been to Missoula before. And we we came there and we liked it. But then we we drove into the Bitterroot. And we were just kind of like blown away by it. Uh, neither of us had ever been there, been here. Um, and we fell in love with it and, and we stayed and here we are.
0: So you were cruising around in like a travel trailer, mm-hmm. trying to, you're just like scouting different places to live. That, that's what you guys were doing?
1: Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we, we did for um, probably s- close to five or six months.
0: Um, wow, that that's pretty badass. Yeah, it it was a
1: heck of an experience, man. Um we we got to There see...
0: Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I cut uh, you off. No, you're good. Uh yeah, it was
1: it was a hell of an experience. We got to see um a lot of the West that we we'd never seen before and definitely broaden our our perspective about the the West in general. So, I yeah, i heard really huh. it for the world.
0: You know, it's it's interesting because I, I i know i know about well i know i know where you're at um and there is like this for anybody that hasn't been through the Bitterroot Valley uh, as you head south out of Missoula that highway will, uh, you know take you all the way through the Bitterroot Valley and up and over the, up and over that pass and drop you down basically into Salmon Idaho yep yep um super cool drive uh if if people are looking for like a scenic road trip. Mm, definitely yeah. put that on the uh, on the list, but exactly. the fly fishing sucks there, though, huh?
1: Oh yeah, it's terrible from what I hear. It's just
0: that's that's what I hear. <laughs> I I I don't want to. Even, I don't even want to talk about the fly fishing in the Bitterroot Valley.
1: Yeah, there's really no point, <laughs> there's really no point in touching on it. And people definitely shouldn't <laughs> in, in, in visit and visit no. <laughs> no, I mean it's How... just, it's top notch from what I hear. I'm I'm. I've, I've fished a lot, but I'm still kind of just like barely above a novice. So my goal is to, is to get better. And I think I'm in the right place to, uh, to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, the, the nice thing about somewhere like the Bitterroot Valley, if you're, if you're just kind of cutting your teeth mm-hmm. on fly fishing, mm-hmm. um, it's not easy fly fishing, but it's not like super challenging fly fishing. It's kind of that. Well, I always kind of, look at it as like this mid, um, I guess, difficulty level. Uh-huh. A- and the reason why I think that's good is because it'll, it'll make you, it, it puts you in all sorts of different circumstances that, that w- if you travel throughout the rest of the American West with a fly rod, you're going to be effective everywhere. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what I love about it. I'm going to have to come and see you, man. We're going to go throw a fly rod around for a little bit.
1: Yeah. Man, that's um,
0: bad. So getting back to this writing thing, I, I'm super curious about the the job itself. Obviously you must work remote, right?
1: I do, yeah, I'm fully remote. And um all the guys that I work with are all pretty well remote.
0: Are they like cause Field and Stream, aren't they based out of like New York or something?
1: Yeah, that's our like our original offices are in New York City. <coughs> Excuse me. But mm-hmm. we um the, the the parent company, if you will, that that owns us is, I believe, has offices in Miami and maybe even San Francisco, um, but there's still a, an office in New York, as far as I know.
0: So I just want to read off some of the for people listening. Um, I and I, I I keep seeing magazine, man. You basically. When you're writing these articles, because you pump out a lot of articles uh are these articles that are going in the magazine or are they mainly like like almost blog format on the website
1: so we are all we are fully digital these days
0: um oh you are okay, yeah, yeah,
1: feeling stream is fully digital um i write i write pretty much uh news quick turn news articles a lot. Um, and those are going you know, straight onto the website immediately when, I'm, uh, when they're published, we also have a platform that's, uh, called FNS plus, and that's some, some of our more exclusive content that is going to be, you know, more similar to some of the stuff that you would have seen in the, in the print magazine back in the day. So well, that's the more highly produced, more, more deeply reported, um uh, content that that you'll see there but that and that's a like a premium subscription model Um, but most of most of my day is you know finding relevant news in the outdoor space and and turning it around pretty quickly and yeah that goes straight onto the website
0: and uh, like walk me through the history of field and stream man because i i think i don't know that there's an outdoorsman out there that doesn't know field and stream um, really? I, you know, I, I grew up reading, you know, Eastman's hunting journals and filled and stream. And, uh, I don't know, there was a couple of bow hunting ones that I read. Of course, I, that wasn't growing up. That was when I was a little older in my like twenties or whatever. So, anyway, yeah, the history of filled and stream goes back, what, 130 years or something like that.
1: Yeah, it, it's. It goes way back, and I, you know, I wish I could tell you the exact year, that, but I, I feel like it dates back to probably the late 1800s. And
0: um. oh, I could tell you the year. It was it was 1895, and the only reason I know that is because I was arguing with Matt Renella okay. um, on one of my podcasts, and I was looking up, you know, hunting media and and oh. how it applies to like the his in the historical context or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they've they go back a long ways I I guess. And so I, I, and I didn't know, man, uh, that, that they've kind of done away with the print model.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're fully digital. Um, that is, uh, that I believe is about maybe two years. I don't know. It it preceded my time with the magazine. They've been fully digital uh, since before I I came on, but, um, (laughs) it's yeah, kind of the way, the way of the world and a lot of, you know, print journalism these days has kind of fallen to the wayside, but, you know, luckily we're, we're still cranking out some, some of that premium uh, content that is very similar to, you know, what we used to have in in the print product. Um, It's just all, it's all digital now. And in some ways, you know, even more, even a a better reader reading experience than it was back then. But yeah, I, 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 I'm a sucker for a print magazine or a print book. You know, it's, it's hard to substitute that having that in your hands, that tangible product.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so that's the thing with all of this. When it, when, when you're it just, I mean, just talking about hunting media in general um, I, and books, like mm-hmm. I, I love books. I, you know, I don't read all of them, but I buy books like crazy. Yeah. like actual hard physical books, because I still love having the copy. And it's the same with magazines. You know, I, I, I still like magazines because it just gives you a little bit different perspective. But the digital part is nice because you can, if my wife puts on some dumb show, I don't want to watch or something at night. I can open up my phone and read, you know, like I, I like I like your headlines. Florida researchers tracked down and killed a giant Burmese python after it ate a collared possum. Like that <laughs> that grabs my attention, man. Yeah, I want to read that. Good. Good. I'm glad uh, that one did it for you. That one went up today. Oh, it did? That's yeah. A, that's a brand new one? Yeah. Uh, and then the one I want to point listeners to is Idaho unveils plan to reduce wolf populations by 60%. Right. Uh, and obviously, be, just because, you know, you you mentioned this show in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about this one article and I haven't read it and I, I kind of did that on purpose because I, I, I have a lot of questions about that. Okay. The article you have, feds will consider removing grizzly bears from endangered species list in Montana and Wyoming. Where are we at with that from what you know, by writing this article?
1: Um, yeah, from what I, from my understanding at the moment is, um, so the fish and wildlife service has, um, to remember, they so they've recommended the um, listing of of, grizz, of grizzly bears and what did you say
0: that is the 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 fed the feds have reviewed that and recommended delisting or a state.
1: So it, yeah, it's the feds, uh, the United States Fish and oh, Wildlife I see Service, um, and you know, I don't even know if it goes quite as far as a recommendation. It's it's almost like uh, another review, um, but they, they have decided that they meet, you know, certain recovery criteria enough to, to warrant another review. Like, it's not like grizzly bears are going to be delist- delisted anytime soon necessarily, but the wheels, the slow moving cogs are at least seem to be in motion for right now
0: yeah so i'm I'm reading this. It's talking about neighboring states um requested state control over the management of grizzly bear populations in the Rocky mountain ecosystems, two of them which is you know glacier park uh there in, um, on kind of northern northwestern montana uh the northern continental divide, which is kind of that yellowstone ecosystem right um I hate the the line a third petition seeking to list grizzly populations in Idaho was denied because that irritates me I think they need to delist them delist them here right what is your thoughts on the whole topic of grizzly bears and delisting them and and where do you stand with all that
1: my if you just want my general opinion it seems like um you know and this is I'm not a grizzly bear researcher and there are are a lot of people that know a heck of a lot more about this than me, but it seems like they have met the criteria for recovery in, you know, at least these zones like the the GYE and the Northern continental divide ecosystem. Uh, It seems like they're there. Like they don't seem to me like an endangered species anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, yeah, and they're they're not. They're just still listed. It's it's right. such a it's such a conundrum because what happens is it's just like the wolf situation, man, where mm-hmm. uh, you know, we we reach population objectives and then it goes through where the states petition to have state management over these animals mm-hmm. uh because these objectives have been met, which was the agreement in the beginning, and then it gets turned over uh, for approval and whatnot, and then here come the lawsuits from, right. like, these pro-Grizzly Bear, the these groups that are centered around one particular species is usually what it is. And you've got these Grizzly Bear groups, you've got these Wolf groups that act like they know better than everybody else, and they act like they have this moral high ground right. because they don't want any hunting. But here's a couple things that I know about Grizzly Bears is... Per capita, Alaska has way more grizzly bears uh, than the lower forty-eight. That we're talking Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, mm-hmm. uh, which are you know the three states. And I, and I think I don't I don't know if somebody's listening that knows this. I I want to say that there is a known population in the state of Washington. Um. But I don't know that for sure. But if you know, uh, hit me up at Jim at the dot com, because I'd be super curious. But we're talking about the tri-state northern rocky region. Right. So uh, Alaska has a higher grizzly bear population per capita uh, than our northern rocky mountain region, mm-hmm. but yet has a less human interaction per capita rate than the lower 48 states. Right. So and I, I know I've, I've talked about this on the podcast, but. I th- and what happens with bears is when they think that they're king shit on the landscape mm-hmm. they they have nothing to fear that's when they get brazen and start doing things like you know the the human interactions that's where those come from right. that's why in alaska they've got this robust hunting system uh hunting season mm-hmm. for grizzly and you know, brown bears. and and that's why these these bears are a lot more timid around humans. Mm-hmm. It's the same concept, uh, again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record based on past episodes. But it's the same concept with human interactions in like the state of Idaho, who's probably one of the most I mean, I, maybe it's a bold statement, travis, but i would I would argue that Idaho is one of the most aggressive. Uh, predator management slash black bear hunting states uh, that that we have. Mm-hmm. When you compare like Idaho and Montana black bear interactions to somewhere like New Jersey where they banned black bear hunting, mm-hmm. the human interactions are completely different. Our bears here are terrified mm-hmm. of human interaction because they have um you know, they understand due to the nature of our hunting seasons is to avoid humans. Right. Where that becomes a problem or places like, you know, Lake Tahoe or New Jersey or mm-hmm. these places where there's not these robust or aggressive hunting seasons um, to teach these bears, the the nature of avoiding human interaction. Right. And I think that that's what happens here. And that's why we have so many bear, you know, attacks and human interactions here in the Northern Rocky mountain region with these grizzly bears and it's making me nervous, like looking into the next ten years mm-hmm. uh when you know thinking about hunting in the back country and whatnot where these where these cruises exist, do you worry about that
1: uh absolutely, yeah, I mean you know being here in in um <clears throat> the bitterroot from what I gather, again, I haven't been here very long, but it seems like at least in the uh most recent history there hasn't been um there haven't been a lot of grizzly bears in this area but they're they're definitely making their way in they're they're moving over you know there was a few that had to be removed up um just north of where i'm at um in the sapphire mountains this Mm -hmm. year um yep but yeah i mean i i don't see why they they shouldn't be hunted um if they've reached full recovery uh i feel like they they shouldn't be exempt from state management in, you know you you mentioned new jersey and you you saw what kind of played out there when the governor um banned grizzly bear hunting as part of his you know campaign
0: uh, black bear black bear hunting you know, in sorry, new jersey right
1: black bears yeah um yeah yeah you know, the um the human interactions just c- went completely through the roof and uh, the folks there just said that they couldn't tolerate it anymore. And and now, you know, they've got some seasons again, but uh, yeah, it seems to me like, yeah, it
0: it was like, you know, when aunt Betty is afraid to take the trash out at night because of the, the bear problem
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the
0: fact that these bears have no fear or no natural fear over humans, Right. That's when these problems exist. That's why there's trash cans knocked over and garbage spread all over the place, and people getting attacked and mauled, and mm-hmm. uh, pets getting killed, and you know dogs getting drug out of the backyard, and bear, mama bears bringing their cubs into the backyard to swim in somebody's pool. You know right. that that kind of stuff just doesn't really happen in Idaho. I mean, we get the occasional mm-hmm. trash can knocked over, right. um, and 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 whatnot, but the the difference is. It only like like when we're talking about grizzly bears. I, I, I'm curious what you think about this. Like when we're talking about grizzly bears, when when you look at the map of the ecological landscapes that have and hold grizzly bears, mm-hmm. I like in my opinion, two hunting tags, whether these hunters were successful or not, but two hunting tags in each of these regions, I think would go a long way to teaching these grizzly bears. That human interaction is bad and and not only would that save grizzly bears because they're not going to get themselves in trouble like uh this last summer we had we had a grizz come down uh into a town just to the north of us They ended up having to get euthanized because it was eating some uh, livestock like goats or something i i don't know what it was i can't remember now, mm-hmm. but it was it was funny how that played out too Travis, because it was like the the bear came down and they um Gave it the old dart so they can, you know, put a collar on it or whatever, right? Uh, and and then they they relocated it. And I I specifically said on the show that bear is going to end up in the same spot and then he's going to get euthanized. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, no shit, like two months later, that bear ended up in the same spot and got euthanized.
1: Really?
0: And and so. If we had like two tags for that particular part of like North Idaho, I'm talking about like the the Cabinet Mountain Range, uh, I feel like just that effort would make grizzly bears think twice about coming into town. What I don't know, am I off base?
1: No, no, I I, I think you're right on. Um, and I mean what it what it all really comes down to too is the you know the nature of the Endangered Species Act, and it was never intended, um, you know, when a when a species goes on the Endangered Species Act, they're not supposed to stay on that forever. I mean, there's there's a recovery yeah. objective uh, that's put in place, and when that objective is met, then those animals should be removed from that federal protection, and, and uh, the state should have the opportunity to to manage through hunting. And yeah, I, I just obviously the grizzly bear is a very iconic creature that tugs at heartstrings, and that's why uh, we see so much reluctance to um, to follow through with what's supposed to be these, uh, recovery, uh, you know, man, you,
0: you, you make a really good point. Um, the, the general idea of the endangered species act was to protect animals that were endangered and get them back to a healthy point in which they would not need to be on this list anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because that's the that's the objective to move these species from endangered to no longer endangered. And it's been hijacked by these anti-hunting groups and these animal activist groups Mm -hmm. to the point where it's diminished the credibility of the ESA. Right. And and I think that that's where we run into issues, you know, like. The Endangered Species Act, it just doesn't hold any real credible water to me anymore Mm -hmm. because it gets it gets abused by these animal rights activists. And I think that in the long run, that is going to backfire on them who who are they are not conservationists, they're preservationists, Mm -hmm. they're protectionists, and it's going to backfire on them. To a point in which nobody's going to have the stomach to put an animal or a species onto the endangered species act as as a writer with what you do for a living travis what what kind of interactions do you experience or see with these animal activist groups is there is there something you could speak to on that
1: uh, i don't have a lot of personal interactions with them to be honest um, you know i just I follow um what they do uh, in the in the media and I follow a lot of you know their, the press releases that they put out um, but I, I'm not it's not like I'm interacting with them uh, on a personal basis at all really but yeah you now I have you know I, I recently recently reported on a, a proposed uh, trapping ban in the state of Vermont um, that seems to be picking up some steam and this would basically just ban recreational trapping in vermont completely you know it uh, there would be no more regulated trapping other than you know government agents uh, doing nuisance trapping or you know hired trappers maybe but it seems like those folks over there are pretty mobilized and i think i've g- been getting some kind of uh off-putting uh <laughs> instagram messages from some of these groups that are trying trying to do that so
0: Oh, really? Yes, if I had
1: to point to one thing, yeah, that
0: might be it. Let's take a quick timeout so I can offer a couple of words from our sponsors. The first one being Eastman's Hunting Journals. Guys, they got the magazine. They got the Mule Deer Course, which is an online e-course for you mule deer hunting enthusiasts like me out there. And they got Tag Hub. If you're looking to do the research you need to find the right tag to fit your budget and your time frame... Check it all out at Eastmans.com. Next is Phelps Game Calls. Guys, Huntsman 10 will get you 10% off at Phelps Game Calls from elk calls, predator calls, deer calls, turkey calls, all the calls you want this coming season. Spring turkey is just around the corner, so make sure you're checking them out. I like the black bat. And last but not least is Hoffman Boots, my boot of choice. One of the most underrated boots that nobody talks about for hunters go to hoppinboots.com and in at checkout use promo code huntsman10 all caps log for 10% off your new favorite pair of hunting boots and folks if you're loving the show if you're loving the podcast please go to itunes or apple podcasts and write a good review for us we really appreciate it it goes a long way to help us with the show and our mission the western huntsman brought to you by eastman's hunting journals check it out you're talking about this bill H one ninety one threatens the future of recreational trapping in the Green Mountain State. That yeah, yeah, that one. Let's see, I've got I've got all your articles here pulled up, man. So oh, make nice. this easy. Uh, yeah, prohibit the trapping of fur-bearing animals unless the trapping is done, uh, quote, in order to defend property or agricultural crops, end quote. So it would essentially end recreational trapping. Uh, yeah. Trapping gets a bad rap, man, and it's it's like an easy target for these animal activists. Oh, yeah, it's
1: um it's a and for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fur-bearing animals, unless the trapping is done. So, you know, that's what why I think that's important and relevant for people to consider and and like kick around in from a sense of um. We've, we've, uh, there's a lot of us have discussed the concept of death by a thousand cuts, right? Yeah. Where, where we, we talk about how these animal activists are looking to take one thing at a time. So it's not like this big eyebrow raising thing, uh, until they get to big eyebrow raising things like, you know, uh, banning deer hunting or, or something crazy like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, but what ends up happening is when, when a bill like this is introduced, you know, let's say it passes. Right. The, the flip side to that is instead of the state fish and wildlife agencies generating revenues for, uh, you know, through trapping licenses and tag sales and whatnot, uh, they end up having to foot the bill mm-hmm. to control these animals that then go out of control because wildlife just doesn't manage itself. And that's the fantasy these, these activists fall into, right. Um, you know, t- like, like, have you ever, have you ever done a story on um, the California situation with mountain lions and like the disparity between what formerly when mountain lion hunting was still legal in the state of California, the revenue side of that, that contributed, you know, not only to the the wildlife agency itself, the state agency itself, For operating expenses but you know there's there's a portion of that 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 goes towards habitat improvement and conservation efforts and whatnot Mm -hmm. um versus today the absolute financial hole that overpopulated mountain lions have created that the the california taxpayers have to pay now because they don't allow them to hunt have you ever done anything on that
1: you know i haven't done anything that kind of looks back at the history of the mountain lion thing in california i've done some some more recent stuff on, uh, efforts to, I think it was to try to ban black bear hunting not too long ago, but yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. That was, yeah. That was a couple years ago. The, uh, mm-hmm. San Francisco legislator, Senator Weiner. Right. I always like to bring up his name. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he's a Weiner, uh, tried to bla- <laughs> tried to ban black bear hunting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I've followed some of that and the more recent things and I've, I've researched the history of what's gone on there in California, but yeah, they're kind of like the tip of the spear when it comes to, to losing hunting rights. It's, uh, it's kind of sad what's gone on here.
0: Have, what about this uh, recent noise coming out of Washington? Um, You know, they've been going through the whole fiasco, losing the spring bear hunt Um, has, what about this recent noise about the commissioner, Lorna Smith, and this whole, and I don't have the details on this yet, um, Travis. Like, maybe, we, maybe we should partner up yeah. <laughs> and and figure out what's going on with this. But there, there is something about this this Commissioner Laura Smith. And by the time this episode is live, I'm gonna know all this. So I kind of feel dumb doing saying it now. But, yeah. um, something about how she's trying to re, uh, redefine what wildlife management is in the state of Washington in an effort to remove as much hunting as possible. If, if, if I'm understanding it, I need to, I've got a couple of buddies over there, like Mike hers and Mm a couple of guys, I I need to call and find out more, but do you, do you know anything about that? First of all,
1: I I reported uh, quite a bit on this, the Washington spring bear debacle last year when it was all just really unfolding. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Lorna Smith. I sat through a lot of those uh, commission meetings just watching uh, to try to understand what they had going on, but it does, it seemed like there's there's a pretty open and obvious attempt um, amongst those those game commissioners there to, yeah, just kind of, like you said, decouple hunting and, and any kind of harvest-based wildlife management strategy from the state agency. It's, yeah, it's pretty terrifying what's happening in Washington.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, here's your article, November 22, Washington State Fish and Game Commission votes to ban spring bear hunting. Um, Is that like a constant, Are, you, are do you have like a specific interest in the animal activists or anti-hunting movement in terms of uh, reporting on that? Is that something you kind of look for or? Yeah, absolutely. How, do you, how do you fall into that? Yeah,
1: I I just try to keep an eye on it, and it's it's something something that I definitely feel compelled to report about um, when I see it when I see it happening. But
0: yeah, the- and you've obviously you've seen a bunch of it. So, mm-hmm. what is your reaction when you see some of these like heinous actions that that some of these activist groups uh, you know come up with? These, these heinous ideas these these uh they're, they're just so far removed from reality it's it's just laughable in a lot of cases except it's not right. because people take them serious and people do it and they they fought they they push this legislation like what's your reaction to a lot of that
1: yeah I think um, in recent years I've I've come to understand the gravity of it more I mean I think it was easier you know years ago I, I grew up hunting in Southern Indiana and, uh, I, I didn't follow the, the anti-hunting movement too much. And it was kind of easy to write it off as, Oh, these, you know, this isn't something that's really going to come and threaten your, your rights, your hunting rights. Um, these are just, you know, people are making much ado about nothing. But, um, when you, when you really dig in, you realize that they they've made a lot of headway and if they're if they're allowed to go unchecked and they will they'll they succeed and like they have in california and like they are in washington right now
0: Hmm. yeah um my, so, you know, short attention span here, but, but you said something that just kind of popped into my mind. I, so I have a buddy who lives in Indiana okay, and he, he is of the opinion and I want to get your take on this. Cause you grew up there and you grew up hunting there. Mm-hmm. He is of the opinion. And I, I don't want to like give away secrets or anything, dude. So I'm always cautious with this, but <laughs> he is of the opinion that, that Indiana is one of the most underrated whitetail deer hunting states in the union. Mm -hmm. How much merit does this statement hold?
1: You know, I don't, I feel like in recent years, they've Indiana has kind of had a spotlight shined on it because there've been so many big bucks killed. I mean, they just had the, I don't know if it was the goon and Crockett typical world record come out of there. Um, But I I would agree with him. Ten years ago, but now it seems like they're, you know, they're up, they're right up there at the top of the list with some of the best white tail states on in the nation. Um, a lot of people would say that, but the uh, the thing about Indiana, having grown up there, is there's just not a whole lot of pu- access to public ground. Um, so it's like you got to know, you got to have uh, some land or know somebody, and that's what I always ran into. Um, I loved hunting there. Hat-
0: how did you navigate that? Did you have to like just go knock on doors and try to get uh access to private property or kind of thing?
1: We did some of that for sure. I mean, we did that for turkey hunting and I think we got in the door with some whitetail hunting that way, but you know, I I hunted with with my cousin on some like reclaimed coal property and it was it might have been a gray area to be honest. I don't know how <laughs> how legal <laughs> it was, but we were uh you know, we were just hunting strip mined uh, area that was kind of you know these coal companies still owned it, but they weren't actively mining, and you know they might get be getting around to mining it again in ten years. But uh, in the meantime, it was just prime whitetail habitat, and we were in there hunting
0: that all the time. So going going from a kid from uh, Indiana, whoop, hold on, can you still hear me, Travis?
1: I can hear you. You
0: hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm just trying to figure out. I just got like this error message on this recorder. There we go. I think I think we're good. All right, I'm just gonna carry on like it okay. didn't happen. Okay. Um. So so going from from a kid out in Indiana hunting whitetail, and then you you'd mentioned you lived in South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, for a bit. Um, which I lived in North Carolina uh, when I was in the military, and okay. then um, so I kind of know like like uh landscape wise I, I i i'm pretty familiar with south carolina uh there's some big bucks there by the way yeah there are there then are. K- uh, yeah yeah, and then coming out then coming out west to somewhere like the bitterroot valley
1: mm-hmm.
0: can like describe describe the life difference like the the overarching uh like difference in lifestyle and and hunting opportunity between all those places
1: yeah it's um it's kind of overwhelming. To the amount of public, uh, public hunting ground that you have access to, um, just deciding where to go and what to do—it's almost overwhelming to me, I and mean, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, the, just the overall lifestyle change. I mean, I just feel like everything is a little slower out here, and everything is more spread out, and it's you know, it's just bigger and obviously more beautiful. But um, I, I would say. Yeah, just I'm I'm overwhelmed by the sheer opportunity that you have um, when it comes to hunting big game species out here.
0: I remember I um, when I was in the service, I had a buddy. Where the heck was he from? I I want to say it was like Illinois, like or not Illinois. God, I went to his wedding, man. I can't I, I can't even remember what state he lived in. Uh, (laughs) Um, but it it was, it was somewhere kind of bordering the East and Midwest, right. And, uh, real good farmland habitat. Um, maybe it was Iowa. I, I, anyway, irrelevant at this point that dude, I'm getting old, man. It looked like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, probably. So I, uh, one of our leave times we we were able to go on leave. He came home with me to Utah. Okay. And, uh, cause I, I, I was raised in Utah and so I took him to Utah. He was like, gonna stay with me for a couple of nights. And then he was going to go on to another friend's house out in California. Uh, and so, he'd, uh, fly out of Salt Lake and, and head over there. But in the meantime, uh, I took him out to do some, it was like out of season. We, we, we went and did some jackrabbit hunting, which you could back in those days. Um, I pro- you probably still can, but you can hunt jackrabbits anytime, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and he'd never been out West and he, he was almost like, it was almost stressful for him, the amount of like land and yeah. the distance that you could see, like the skyline was so much further mm-hmm. than what he was used to. And I, I know what he feels like because when I landed in North Carolina for the first time, when, uh, when I got stationed out there, mm-hmm. There was like a sense of I had this like almost claustrophobic feeling. I bet where there was it was so flat and there was all these trees and like you just can't see very far, right? Um, and, and so I th- th- I'm always interested in how people react to these different regions of the country and and how different like I don't think I don't think a lot of people understand how different things are from like the southeast to the Midwest to the Western states to the West Coast or the Northeast even.
1: Yeah, you know yeah.
0: the it, it you look at you look at overlaying Europe over the United States, the lower 48 and, and you know, you're talking you'd have multiple countries within that, that spread. Right. So, so now that you're out here, uh, what's been like the biggest challenge for you hunting wise?
1: Um, I think it's just trying to understand, um, the patterns of, uh, species that I'm not familiar with at all like elk and and mule deer i mean um yeah i just grew up whitetail hunting and even living in south carolina we were hunting mountain deer mountain whitetails Mm -hmm. in the foothills of the blue ridge but um yeah i'm just i kind of feel like i'm starting from scratch on the whole the elk hunting and and um and mule mule deer hunting and they're just such a different beast you know because they're just constantly moving around the landscape they're not like You know, obviously we have a lot of whitetail deer here too that just hang out in the river bottoms, but um, I really, I I really want to get in, you know, and I've gone on a couple of elk hunts with some folks that know what they're doing. Uh, But, you know, my, my goal is to, is to become proficient in my own right, but that's, yeah, that's my big challenge right now, I guess.
0: You, uh, are you, when you go elk hunting, are you kind of, or are you mainly doing archery or are you doing rifle, muzzleloader?
1: Um, the last year I went on one archery hunt in, I guess it was probably like early October. Um, we we saw a ton of sign and we got in a place where some elk had recently been, but they they just were long gone. Um, and then I went a couple of times, I checked out some state-owned land during rifle season on my own, but uh, just felt kind of clueless out there, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I know this, I know this place where you can learn a bunch about elk hunting.
1: Yeah. What's that?
0: <laughs> you want me to fill you in? It's yeah. the school of September on the Western Huntsman podcast, brother.
1: Okay. I got to check that. <laughs>
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. We do. We do a series where, uh, I'll bring in like some elk hunting expert like Dirk Durham, or, um, I think I got, uh, Cody Rich said he'd come on, uh, for this year. So oh, Cody's a good dude. Right. Um, love love to get him on and and we just kind of go through the motions you know how do they hunt how do they hunt elk uh, the way cuz everybody has their own style and and their own process
1: right
0: and uh so so there's that but uh I don't I, I'm not trying to turn this into a big western huntsman podcast uh commercial but mm-hmm. it's we're, we're going to be starting next month so Sweet. stay tuned for that yeah i'm definitely um, be
1: all over that man
0: so, as like a writer for Field and Stream, if if you go out and let's say you uh, you call in like a big six point elk, um, you know those big bulls on the ground, um, is that something like you'd be able to write about in the magazine?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it would be up to me to to pull it off, but I I feel like I could some get something pretty good out of a, a experience that profound. Um, some kind of you know narrative. Yeah, definitely come of that.
0: What are your what are your like aspirations when it comes to writing is. Are, are you are you somebody who's looking like down the road to maybe write more on like a book kind of thing or like tell me a little bit. What does writing mean to you, first of all?
1: Yeah, um, I I don't have any book projects in the works, but that's something that I definitely aspire to do. I don't really know. Uh, what I would write a book about, but I guess that would just kind of, you know, hopefully some kind of idea would materialize at some point. But um, right now I, I'm pretty focused on just journalism in general and just reporting, um, reporting conservation related news stories and any other, you know, news Mm -hmm. relevant to our, to our space. But I, I, if I had to pinpoint a calling, it's, you know, it's kind of, I'd say that conservation reporting um, is kind of where it's at for me right
0: now. And how how do you even find these stories, man? Like you got main hunter tags, nine point buck locked up with dead 10 pointer. Yeah. You've got, um, let me go back over here and scroll up. You had some really interesting ones. 300 waterfowl dead and suspected bird flu. In Illinois, Idaho angler catch and releases uh, new state record, Ocean Run Coho Salmon, um, 160 class Georgia Giant and Antler Doe. Yeah. Uh, Caller. Like, like. how do you find stories like that? Uh, I do a lot of. Do you, do you just like. Uh, I scour the internet a lot.
1: I mean, I'm just going to, you know, I get a lot of press releases sent to me and I'm just, you know, constantly monitoring google and then sometimes i'll have sources that tip me off to to stuff that's going on that's relevant like the vermont trapping bill that that i recently wrote about i had a retired game warden over there that i've i've quoted in previous stories about vermont just reach out to me and let me know that that was going on but um, sometimes once in a blue moon it'll fall into your lap like that but i'm usually just kind of always on the hunt for for stories and google is a big part of that and uh yeah just kind of monitoring press releases from state agencies and, and stuff like that
0: dude i i dig it man because i'm i'm so i'm just so like the audience knows i am on filled and com forward slash author forward slash travis dash hall forward slash so it, again it's like your author page or whatever or your your writer page right. um it's got your bio and all that. And so is yeah. there, as I'm on this, because I'm I'm going through all these different headlines and all these different, you know, we, we do something similar over at Eastman's where um, we, we, there's like this constant flow of blog articles that are coming out mm-hmm. uh, regarding different, you know, various topics, whatever. Right. Uh, is there a way for me to sign up to just get your articles coming into my e- inbox? Because like there is a... There is a boatload of podcast material in uh, just on your page.
1: Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know that there's a way to do that to just get mine. But we have um, a weekly newsletter that goes out. We have uh, several different weekly newsletters, but uh, you know that would probably be the best way if you wanted to get some of our content just straight into your email inbox. I would suggest going to the website and uh, subscribing to our various newsletters.
0: The newsletter sign up, conservation, survival guns, geared, fishing. Okay. Yeah, a lot of so, my
1: stuff ends up in those, so it'll definitely come your way.
0: I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep this page open on my my laptop here and just refresh it every day or something.
1: Yeah, there you go. Um, do that too.
0: Like I wanna I want I, I it, my uh I, I don't know. I think it would be fun to periodically open up like a page like you've got here. And okay, you've got this article, Georgia Hunter suffers hundreds of bite wounds during brutal dog attack in the woods. Like I, I could get that and then I could I could track down this dude in Georgia and get him on the show and talk about this damn dog attack.
1: Yeah, you should do that, man. I talked to him the other day for about forty five minutes and that was um he went through a really horrible ordeal, yeah. Yeah. Um he was Dude, look at he, his
0: legs. That is brutal.
1: Yeah, he had three dogs going at him at once. He was um trying to move uh one of his ladder stands, just doing some like routine off I guess their season just ended. He was doing some of his routine off season maintenance to his his um deer stands, and all of a sudden he he had three dogs come in, and I think one he said one started attacking him. And then the others just kind of joined in, like almost pack, pack like mentality.
0: Yeah, and,
1: and yeah, that guy's probably lucky. He's lucky to be alive. It sounds like if, Le- what he went through.
0: But like, what is it? Is it like wild dogs, or no, like the neighbors' dogs?
1: There, I believe they were just stray dogs that a uh, adjoining property owner or maybe a tenant on a adjoining piece of property owned, and I think. Mm-hmm. Some folks just let their dogs run wild. You know, we deal with that, and I hunt in Kentucky with with my uh, cousins, and you know, we'll deal with that once in a while. Um, just dogs come running through the woods, but the pe these people, these people here, obviously were negligent dog owners, and and these dogs were just out running, running wild, essentially. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's switch gears here just real quick because um, I found another topic that I'm really interested in. And I'm only interested in it. Well, uh I'm interested in it. It says Wyoming looks to ban non-resident shed hunting for first 3 days of spring season.
1: Yeah, that's a annoying.
0: Wyoming bill. What kind of reaction did you get when you when you got that uh when you published that?
1: We got um I I had a guy that lives in Montana actually that goes to Jackson hole every year to hunt sheds, email me. And he's very upset about that. Um, yeah, it seemed like most of the reaction that I saw was non-residents who were unhappy with this proposal. Um, but oh,
0: non-residents. Were,
1: yeah. Non people that aren't residents. Oh,
0: I, so you know what, Travis, I, I missed that. I I just thought it was Wyoming looks to ban shed hunting for the first three. I see what they're doing They're So they're trying to get rid of non-residents the first three days, giving that to residents only.
1: That's what they're, that's what they're proposing. Yeah. And I need to check back in on that one. I know it, I think it might've passed the house and it's on to the Senate, but um, they have some, I guess, pretty big issues in around the, the elk refuge in Jackson with, just oh yeah. crazy crowding uh when
0: Yeah, dude. Yeah, it, it's a it's a freaking dumpster fire. Yeah, it, it's I've, a freaking dumpster seen. fire. Yeah.
1: Have you been down there for it before?
0: So years ago I was. And I I was actually rolling through town for a totally different reason. Mm-hmm. Um it just happened to be when the like the shed hunting season was starting or whatever and I mean there were people Uh, it was like the entire world had descended on Jackson, uh, to go, to go find sheds. And, you know, for, for me, dude, I, I don't get it. I'm not a shed hunter. I could give two rips Uh about going out and looking for sheds. I don't care. Um, it's just not my thing, but, and so I was surprised to see how serious some people take this shed hunting thing.
1: Yeah. But
0: I'm, I've also, oh, go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say it is it is definitely a big deal, and I feel like it's gotten more and more popular in recent years as these sheds, these shed antlers have gone up in value. I mean, they're just the dog chew market has exploded,
0: and uh, yep,
1: people are making some decent money doing this stuff. I guess.
0: Well, and you know, I, I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody on social media, but you know, social media has played a lot into this whole shed hunting craze where people like they go out and they act like they just put down a, you know, 300 class bowl because they found the shed. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's silly to me. I just, I don't understand it. Uh And I'm sure I'm going to get some nasty hate mail emails, whatever about that. Mm -hmm. But I just think it's dumb. And it's just not impressive to me to go out and find sheds. I, I, I don't know that that's all beside the point, because I, I want to look at the the issue of non-residents coming to Wyoming to shed hunt. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that people have this misconception that state wildlife agencies are there to manage for both residents and non-residents, which they're not mm-hmm. the the every state agency is pretty clear on the fact that they are managing the wildlife to benefit the residents of the state of, you know, said state, in this case, Wyoming, that ties into where they, you know, one of the benefits is allowing non-residents to come in and do this or that uh, because of the revenue that that generates. And that helps keep, you know, your basic resident deer tag price way down or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm, um because they just similarly uh, similarly is that a word you're a writer man you can like fix my verbal grammar
1: i think so similarly uh, we have to look uh, okay it
0: <laughs> <laughs> if it's not it's in the new western huntsman dictionary available on uh, you know somewhere hey, but yeah. <laughs> um they they just it. did something similar in utah where they they postponed or or banned shed hunting until right it's it's either like May 1st or May 30th or something, sometime in May, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people are in a freaking uproar about it. And and it kind of, and I want to get your take on this, but like my reaction to it is this, man, like we, and we've been talking about this all winter. Mm-hmm. If hunting is conservation, why in the, why in the hell, I'm trying to watch my mouth. Do you care if I swear? I'm going
1: to hurt my feelings,
0: man. Okay. Okay. If hunting is conservation, why the fuck do we have people going out there in February and March uh, scaring the crap out of these big game animals that are already struggling towards the end of a cold winter, high snow season right? and right. really putting add a bunch of added stress on them? And people are out there like they're bitching about this whole banning uh, shed hunting in Utah. Uh, like, 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 seriously, man, people are acting like it's ruining their life. That they yeah. can't go walk around and find antlers, it's it's ridiculous, yeah. And, and it just it just bothers me, man. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think people understand the hardships of of like what a mule deer goes to in a heavy snow year, right. and how difficult it is for them to just scrape by until spring hits, and and you know the the shrubs and everything else starts kind of coming back in into season, right? And and, and like you are so enthralled by finding shed antlers because you want to look cool on social media and then run around claiming that you're some conservationist. It's so hypocritical. Right. No, I definitely. And Yeah. What do you think about it?
1: Yeah. I definitely see, see your point there. And I, I definitely tend to agree with you. I mean, that was one big reason that this, uh, these legislators have cited in trying to get this bill passed in Wyoming is these um, these elk herds are, you know, if, if it's been a tough winter, they're in dire straits almost towards the end end of it. And you got people bumping them off off beds and you know what happens to it. Oh, yeah. Like from an adrenaline standpoint and just the, the sheer stress that that can be put on on a, an elk or a deer just by seeing people or smelling people from hundred yards away. Um, yeah, I, I think it makes cool. sense to regulate this stuff and, and kind of give, give those animals a break you know, here in the bitter where I'm at. We have a lot of, uh, winter range that stays closed until a certain time of year. Um, and that seems yeah. to make a lot of sense to me.
0: I mean, it totally does, and and I hope I didn't offend you, man. Like, if you're okay. some big time shed hunter or something, but not at all. I mean, um,
1: I've, I've probably I, happened upon two sheds in my life, and I wasn't really exactly hunting for them. It's just a happy yeah to thing.
0: I mean, I'm happy. I'm happy to pick up a, a a cool elk shed or something that I find while I'm out hunting or while I'm out looking for huckleberries or while I'm out, you know, mushroom hunting or something totally different. But I don't. I don't go out and actively shed hunt, and so. Um, now that does not apply to, um, some people use shed hunting as a scouting tool for hunting. Like I, I, like I got a buddy, uh, Troy, who is a, um, prolific, uh, giant mountain public land, whitetail killer here in North Idaho.
1: That sounds awesome.
0: And this... This is like a, this is like a year round thing for him where he, he does go out and tries to find these sheds to track which bucks made it through the hunting season and figure out where they're living because they're going to be in that area when he's hunting, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's, I, I get that, but I still question the, the entire premise of where, you know, we've got these animals that are already low on calories Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when you bump them out of their winter bed or their winter range, they're burning calories that they can't afford. Right. Like they can't afford right. to burn those calories, but they're, you know, you're chasing them back up the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast episode, I suppose. I, I, I'm i keeping you a long time tonight, buddy. <laughs>
1: no, you're good. Yeah, so, that, that could definitely be a podcast in and of itself. Um, it's a, yeah. It's a hot topic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, I envy you. Um, you know, you live in the Bitterroot Valley. You have this remote job where you just get to write about hunting and and uh, you know, go fly fishing in the in the Bitterroot and hunt hunt Western Montana. You know, it's not it's not a terrible place to be, brother.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot to complain about, man. I love that. I love being here. I love this this part of Montana that we settled in. I love the whole state, and it's it's a great job. I enjoy it. I've always. Um, so it's always been a dream of mine to write for Field and Stream. So, you know, actually being a full time staff editor for him is, is pretty unbelievable for me. Um but yeah sounds like, you got a, sounds like you got a pretty good thing going on up there in North Idaho too, huh?
0: Yeah, man. Uh yeah, we love it. We we I mean we just absolutely love it. Uh we're in a great spot. Um you know, interestingly, my wife and I We put in, and I don't know if I've ever admitted this, but um, not that it's bad or anything. But years ago, we put in an offer on a place in Derby, Montana.
1: Oh yeah, south
0: of us. And yeah, 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 yeah. So a little further south in the Bitterroot there. Mm -hmm. Um, The but we had to retract the offer because the position that I had applied for, um, they basically pulled the position and it was kind of like a remote position, but it wasn't like online. It was like, I I had to go out and, and, uh, you know, meet with customers or whatever, but it was, it was like a home office remote position Mm -hmm. and they decided to pull it from the state of Montana, um, because they felt like the, um, the market wasn't big enough. And so it wasn't worth investing in somebody being there full-time kind of thing. Wow. And so because they made that decision, my wife and I never moved to Darby, Montana, but we, we found this kick ass spot, it had this cool stream rolling through the property. It was like, I don't know, three or four acres, cool old log cabin kind of place. Oh, so um, cute. yeah, yeah. This was years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really cool spot. I was, I was pretty bummed there for a while, but it, you know, things work out for a reason. So, Definitely. uh, we're, we're super happy where we're at, but, um, why don't you uh, tell everybody where they could find you, man?
1: Yeah, so um, I have—I'm on Instagram. My Instagram handle is uh, Travis Hall Media. Um, I'd say that's—that's that's mm-hmm. probably the best place to get me. Uh, I don't do much with Facebook, um, and then of course, you know, just my bylines on the on the Field and Stream website, pretty much on a daily basis. So you can see all of my work there.
0: So, guys, what I'm going to do uh, in the show notes is I will put Travis's Instagram and I will also put this uh, filled and stream slash author tra- sl- uh, slash Travis Hall website. It's a mouthful. Um, I'll put all that in the show notes, guys. Uh, I would I would encourage you to check it out. It's uh, I, you know, personally, I, I feel like Travis, uh, he's a really good writer. He's got a he's very articulate and it's It was super, there was like some irony involved when, um, you'd mentioned the podcast on, on, uh, one of your articles, um, because I'd read some of your articles and I, I had been reading your articles for, I don't know, the past several months, Oh, nice. uh, because I, I feel like you cover a lot of things that I'm interested in. And so, um, there was, there was some irony involved To yeah. Uh, and, and again, man, I'm honored that you mentioned my podcast. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm honored that that you had me on here tonight and I really appreciate you reading my stuff. It's good to hear that, um, that it, I'm putting out some things that you find interesting because I admire yeah. your, your work as well. I'm a,
0: uh, I, am i have been, I posted a couple of your, adi- or articles on my Twitter. So I'm brand new back on Twitter. Oh, <laughs> I man. have like 10 followers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Gotta build it back so. up.
0: Yeah, we had I when uh my my old Twitter. It was pretty big, man. I there we had a a couple thousand followers on there, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh and it was growing a bunch, but then they were doing all this weird shit, so I I just flat out got rid of it. Yeah. Uh, but with this new change in management, um it's yeah. pretty fun being on there again. Yeah. Cuz that's where it. I could I I like to go and talk smack to to uh certain demographics. Yeah. <laughs> um, on Twitter.
1: So. You got a little more freedom to do that these days, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Well, Travis, I appreciate you joining me on the show, man. Stick on the line for just a minute. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show um, from from a guy who is, you know, always been intrigued by the whole lifestyle of being a writer. And I've always been interested in it. Uh, I'm a terrible writer, but I, I do try. Uh, it's just it's cool having somebody like you that actually does it for a living and is, is actually really good at it, uh, and and just having a discussion on hunting and, and uh, different topics of what what you're interested in and, and just keep doing what you're doing, man. I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I appreciate you having me, and, and thanks again for for reading my stuff, man. It's, it's good to know that it's it's falling uh, on on some ears out there. So I appreciate it. Man.
0: Yeah, for sure.